Welcome to the Pathway Church Podcast. We're a Bible-based church located in Peterborough, Ontario. We're on a mission to reach people far from God and see them become devoted followers of Jesus. Hey, if you haven't been with us, this week we are in the fourth and final week of a message series called The Problem of Jesus. The speaker is uh, Mark Clark from Village Church in British Columbia. And uh, in this particular message, he is going to be addressing the problem of Jesus as God. Throughout history, people have had many different views and perspectives on who Jesus is. And I'm telling you, if you uh, understand who he is as God, as the Son of God, it changes everything. And it's why we worship him. And so I hope this message is helpful to you. Grab a notepad and your Bible and uh, lean in and learn uh, something with us today as we grow together. Hey everyone, Pastor Mark Clark here. So glad that you are part of this Problem of Jesus series. Today, we are jumping into one of the most, if not the most important topic that we will have talked about in this series. The question of whether Jesus ever claimed to actually be God and what that has to do with our life. So if you've got a Bible, John chapter 1 will be the backdrop of what we're talking about today. Here's John chapter 1. Jesus says something so crazy and scandalous in it. He says, verse 14, and the word which John has already defined as Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Then verse 18, he says, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the father's side. He, meaning Jesus, has made him known. Here's the crazy thing. I was at the bank recently and I went to the bank and there was an Indian lady there and we started chatting. I said, have you ever been to India? And she was just kind of looking down at her computer and like, yeah, I grew up there. And I'm like, oh, cool. And we, you know, she wasn't really paying me much attention. Then all of a sudden I said, I've been there. And she looked up, she's like, what? And I'm like, yeah, what about the food? What about the people? What about the villages? I went there for weeks. I loved it. And all of a sudden she looked at my wife. She's like, have you been there? My wife's like, no. And she's like, hmm? ignore come back to me now what was that this connection this relationship was built off the fact that i had been there suddenly there was a connection around something that we shared because i've actually been present in this place i've smelled the smells i've walked on the ground i've seen the people see this is what makes christianity different from every other religion god himself christianity claims actually came He entered into our world. He didn't keep his distance from our mess and just tell us how to get to him or hope we become enlightened enough to reach him on our own through meditating or pilgrimages or living right. He came down the mountain to us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now stop and think about that for a moment. If that's true, isn't it worth just just breaking from the busyness of your life to listen to what he has to say, to learn from what he did? Don't your eyes light up? Don't you want to lean in to the one who understands what it's like to be human like us? But I'm getting ahead of myself a bit because this is actually one of the most controversial aspects of any exploration of Jesus, the question of his divinity. Did Jesus ever claim to be God? Did he, it's a hotly, did he claim it by his actions, by his words at all? This is super debated. New age arguments say, which are growing in popularity in the Western world, thanks to Deepak Chopra and Eckhart Tolle and Oprah Winfrey and kind of the, the, the normalization of that philosophy, they claim Jesus was just an enlightened teacher. Right, Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, they say, well, we believe in Jesus as a prophet, uh, maybe as the only way to salvation, but we don't believe he was divine or that he ever claimed to be God. 
That's the religious version. The secular version says Jesus didn't say or do most of what we think he did. Uh, one version that called the Jesus seminar said he actually did less than 20% of what the gospels claim. The issue for these thinkers has never been whether or not Jesus existed or whatever, but they denied that he was God or that he ever claimed to be God. So both of those visions, the religious and the secular are vastly different from one another, yet they agree in denying that he claimed to be divine, at least in the way that Christianity claims. Skeptics belong to either of these groups and they contend that the idea of Jesus as God was inherited from the early church. The early church just kind of made it up. So if you read Dan Brown's book, The Da Vinci Code, which sold like 80 million copies, so a lot of people have been influenced by it. He says this, until the Council of Nicaea, In 325 AD, Jesus was viewed by his followers as a great and powerful man, but a man nonetheless. Jesus, as the son of God, was voted on by the Council of Nicaea. Constantine turned Jesus into a deity 400 years after Jesus' death. That's the claim. So God becoming human. It's always been the question behind all other questions. If Christianity has this wrong, then it's got everything wrong. Yet, if Christianity has this right, then everyone else is wrong on a very important question and is on the wrong path in life. There are entire religions that have respect for Jesus, such as Islam, Judaism, Mormonism, while maintaining he's not God. So which is it? Let's look at the evidence. Everything hinges on the answer. Evidence number one, Jesus as God in the early church. There's no doubt that the first Christians spoke about Jesus as God. They wrote about it. They sang about it in his earliest letters that were actually dated before the gospels, mid fifties AD. The apostle Paul says in Colossians chapter one, that all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. And in Colossians 2, he says, in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. He writes in Philippians 2 that Jesus did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. And that God has spoken to the world, Hebrew says, by his son, through whom also he created the world. That he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now, to to a Jew like Paul or the person writing the book of Hebrews, what's called creational monotheism was important. It was essentially the doctrine regarding God. God was one. He was the creator and he shared glory with no one. Yet in passage after passage... Paul and the New Testament writers ascribe the titles of God and his creational acts and essence to Jesus. In truth, there is no doubt, one scholar has said, that in the usage of the New Testament writers, the title Lord is regarded as the title used of God in the Old Testament and now applied to Jesus. So contrary to skeptical myths, the early church actually worshiped Jesus as God and came to view him as fully divine and fully human long before the 325 AD. This is the original letters, 50s AD. 300 years before Dan Brown claims it was it was decided on by a council. The writers are saying simply, hey, it's not a heresy, it's not impossible, it's the reality around which you should shape your life. That's their conviction. So evidence number two is Jesus as God in the gospels themselves. 
I once held this like public question and answer session in a coffee shop and I was asked by this person, they said, why should I believe that Jesus was God if he never said the words, I am God, those three words in that order. And I responded that the question was based on a mistaken assumption that Jesus would have talked like us and said things in a way that would satisfy our ways of thinking and determining truth. Yet if he had done so, his meaning actually would have been missed by his immediate audience of first century Jews. So while it is true, Jesus didn't put those three words in that exact order, it's also irrelevant. that in the end, Jesus said even more than that. He made his claims to be God through the words and methods of first century Jews would have understood. We might miss Jesus' claim to be God, but that's our problem. The world Jesus lived and breathed and responded right on cue. Listen to a couple of the passages in the New Testament. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. John chapter five, verse 18. So let me take you through a bunch of stuff that Jesus said, and then I'll talk about what he did around this question of the claim to be God. Um, He claimed that he invented the Sabbath and had the authority to update the rules about observing it. He put his own knowledge on par with God's. He claimed to be equal with God. He claimed that whoever saw him saw the Father. When Jesus is given the opportunity to correct people, treating him as if he was God, he doesn't do that. He claimed to have pre-existence, having descended from heaven and being older than Abraham. He claimed to be replacing the temple, which was the place where God's presence resided and where forgiveness of sins occurred. He claimed to have shared glory with God before the world existed. 39 times Jesus claims to be a missionary from heaven. He claimed he would send his angels Elsewhere in the Bible, angels, of course, are referred to the angels of God. He claimed the authority to forgive sins. He assumed the authority to judge the world and that one's attitude toward him would define the judgment they received at the end of their lives. He claimed to be perfectly sinless. He took the divine name I am, which was from the book of Exodus, on himself. And he said, I am. He claimed, I and the Father are one. And we could just keep going and going and going. These are all the things that he was claiming about himself. Pretty clearly in that culture, he was claiming to be divine. Now, what about what he did? Some of the things he actually did that portrayed and and communicated this. He taught people to pray to him multiple times. Subsequently, we actually see people like Stephen in the book of Acts pray to Jesus. Paul prays to Jesus. John prays to Jesus. He does the nature miracles, like walking on water, turning water into wine to communicate that he is God over nature itself. Who is this that the wind and waves obey him? His audience asks. Of course, nobody but Yahweh does the wind and the waves obey. He received worship from people, uh, which not even angels would accept. He lived into his name rightly called Emmanuel. Remember in Matthew chapter one, call his name Emmanuel because it means what? God with us. He assumed authority to forgive sins, which only God can do. He claimed to determine people's eternal destiny before God. Jesus claimed to be God through both word and deed and did it in a way that upended everyone's ideas. See, in my experience, there are generally two reasons people reject 
that Jesus claimed to be God. Either people, one, already have an idea of who God is and they can't fit Jesus into that, or two, they already have an idea of who Jesus is and they can't fit God into that. When we study the life and teachings of Jesus and the New Testament letters that actually followed from those teachings, we see that Jesus challenges both of those streams of thought and presents to his listeners a radical alternative picture of both himself and God. Right? This claim to be God incarnate is not made by the founder of any other religion. The closest thing we have to this assertion by some Hindus is that Buddha is an avatar of Vishnu, but the Buddha himself never made such a claim. See, there's a need to rethink our understanding of the word God in light of Jesus. That's the point. Rather than just the other way around. We got to understand that we, when we approach, there's, there's no doubt that one of Jesus' central aims was to teach the world about God. One writer says this, Jesus' primary and ultimate idea, the thought with which he began and conducted all his thinking was the idea of God. See, Jesus is inviting his listeners to think of God or rather to rethink what they know about that word in relation to everything he says and does in light of who he is and what he says about God. See, this is where this messes with us a bit because we're constantly focused on, let me rethink Jesus. He's going to rethink God in light of me. He pulls back the curtain about the nature of God and specifically his relationship to human beings. How far is God really removed? How much does God care about my situation and the pain I face? See, the cross of Jesus wasn't just about our salvation from sin, something Jesus did to save the world. It was also a statement about God, his very nature, who he is in his being. Let me, let me illustrate this. So after 9-11, there was a church in Manhattan that my buddy was a pastor of, and the two, the 9-11 happened on Tuesday. The Sunday after, there was a record attendance at his church. People from all over Manhattan streaming in. And I wanted to know, what did this guy, my buddy's pastor, preach that day, the Sunday after 9-11? And I went and I listened to the sermon. It was John chapter 11, the story of Lazarus rising from the dead. And he talked about this one verse, Jesus wept. He said, it's the shortest verse in the Bible. Why does Jesus weep, he said. Why does he weep when he knows that in five minutes he's going to raise, Jesus, raise Lazarus from the dead? He weeps because he wants to enter in. He's drawn down into the grief of the human experience, into the trauma, into the pain of their hearts. Jesus goes in. He enters into the pain of the world to fully identify with our lives in every way. This was not only about God's will or his plan, something he did. The entering in tells us who God is, who he's always been. We see a God with Christianity, with pathos, right? Who hears the cries of his people and enters into their story in the form of a burning bush, a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night in a tabernacle in a temple, all to be with them, to save them. See, in your pain, in your grief, what you get is the God who enters in. He weeps with you. He, he gets into the pain of the human experience. No other concept of God has that. When you, This is the God that faced pain, suffering, tragedy, the death of family and friends. It's enough to make you wonder if we ever really knew what words like God or human even meant before Jesus came. 
what Jesus taught about God and demonstrated through his actions forces us to entirely rethink what we assume is true of God, how we fill that word with meaning. The early disciples and the authors of the New Testament, one writer has said, had discovered the crucified, risen, and enthroned Jesus, the Lord of the world, and in so doing, had filled the meaning of the word God with new content, or rather discovered what its true content always was. See, this is what we got to let rattle us a bit. G.B. Caird, who was a scholar at Oxford years ago, he says this, it is the contention of the New Testament writers that with the coming of Jesus, the whole situation of mankind has so altered as to change the content of the word God. See, the New Testament's doing far more than's been often felt in that it's not just recounting a story of a person or, or made up of a bunch of letters of implication of that person and his life, but articulates and invites its hearers to actually share a new worldview, which carries at the very heart of it, a new concept of God and a proposed new way of actually saying the word. See, only Buddha and Jesus so impressed the audiences that they were around, that they were asked, not just who are you, but what are you? What order of being do you belong to? What species do you represent? Buddha asserted that he was not a God or even some angelic divine being, but Jesus took an approach that could not be more different. He repeatedly and continually claimed to be God, the creator of the universe, Israel's God. See, in this way, come back to the guy at the coffee shop. He was saying he's God, but not in those three ways, because what would that have even meant? There's lots of worldviews that claim that we're all divine. New Age thinking thinks we're all divine. So he wouldn't have even been communicating what he wanted to communicate. He's Israel's God. He's the one true God of all the world. This is what we see in the life and the person of Jesus. There's a theologian named Cornelius Van Til, and he reminds us that Jesus is not just revealing a part of God to us. He's the way in which we know God. He says this, there is much in the scriptures about Christ. He's the only way through whom God can be known. Christ's work is a means to an end. It's not just as an end in itself. It's saying, as John said, he's explaining God to us. Jesus taught that he is the one and only God, lacking nothing, but also indicating that God is a plurality, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's why eternally one, eternally distinct. That's why when he baptizes and he says, I want you in the Great Commission to go out and baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. At his baptism, he's there. The Father's voice is declaring him as the beloved Son and the Spirit falls on him like a dove. Three, that's why the claim of Jesus that God not only exists, but is knowable is scandalous to an agnostic who says, well, we, we're not really sure. Jesus comes along and he says, no, no, no. He's actually knowable. See, he challenges atheism by claiming that God exists. He challenges Hinduism by saying there's only one God. He challenges Islam and Judaism by claiming there's a, a, he, a mere man is divine and there's a plurality in God. And he challenges agnosticism because he says God is knowable. See, no matter what your religious view or life philosophy, Jesus won't let you fit him into your way of thinking. He confronts you. He confronts all of us with his claim and won't let us off the hook until we've made a decision about him. So 
what does he say about God? One of the most beautiful things he says about God is that God is love. If you ever doubted it before, I mean, God isn't someone that we just have to run up to the mountain. He came down the mountain for us. And what I mean by that is a guy came into my office one day. His mom had set up our meeting and he came in my office and he said, uh, hey man, uh, I just want to let you know that um, I am a, a nihilist, basically. I, I don't believe in anything. I don't really care about anything. But I used, I grew up on the stories and I used to believe in Christianity. And, uh, but I don't anymore. But one of my problems is, is over the last couple of weeks, I've been experiencing massive anxiety in my life. I walked outside a couple of weeks ago. I looked up to the stars and there was this quick instant of some, I connected to something behind the veil but I know it's just playing, my mind playing tricks on me. And my mom wanted to just set up this meeting, so I'll give you an hour. And we sat and talked. And I said, what's your view of God growing up? And he's like, well, he's angry and mad and vindictive and wants to pay me back. And so I went and took a book off my shelf and I showed it to him. And I said, you know, this book does a psychological study on people who get fed information about God is angry and the anxiety centers of their brain are firing but there was a psychological study done in the same group that when they're fed images of God's love, the anxiety centers go down and, and the images, the parts of their brain that experience pleasure actually fire up. Do you know that one of the things that Jesus shows us is that God is love and that he loves us and that maybe the thing that you're missing in life is the view that Jesus exegetes God for us, that he's love. He sat there in my office and said, no one, as much as I grew up in the church, as much as I sang all the songs, I've never heard this before. And even as you were talking, I experienced for the second time in my life that thing where the veil seemed to open for a quick second. And he said, I'm leaving here amazed at the fact that the thing I needed to know was the thing I sang in church all those years, that God actually loves me. See, what are the implications of this for all of our lives when we look at Jesus and we learn that God is love? Whether we will admit it or not, we relentlessly seek that which brings us joy and pleasure. That's what Jesus is showing us, the way to get ultimate joy and pleasure. Could it be that by redefining our understanding of God in light of Jesus, we can somehow fulfill that longing in a way that's actually eluded us otherwise. Like everyone wants to be happy. We all want a life full of meaning. Could the way of Jesus actually lead us there? That's what Christianity says. Could what he reveals about God, the suffering servant who dies in our place, giving himself up for us in love, hold the secret to what we've been missing in life? The answer is yes. So whether you're running to or from God, it's essential for you to understand the nature of God. If Jesus is right, that happiness and contentment are only experienced if we find him and God is who we see in the face of Jesus, the man himself, then anything we believe about God that's not explicitly centered on Christ is misguided and will actually lead us astray one way or another. So, so will you look to him as the one who brought this mystery into the light? Because here's the other implication of it, that Jesus is the only way. See, the only thing maybe even more scandalous to a modern skeptic than the idea that Jesus is God is the idea that he's the only way to salvation. 
He's the only way to experience salvation, go to heaven and, and, and have God. It's the claim of exclusivity, the claim that he's the right way and every other way of trying to find God is wrong, therefore. Our culture is repelled by that. But Jesus spoke in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's why Christianity says it's not that Jesus of Nazareth is blazing a trail or giving us the right teaching or pointing us along the true path. Rather, it says he is the path itself. Jesus isn't saying, listen to me and you will get on the right bus. He's saying, I'm the bus. And I'm the only bus. The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And very few find it, Matthew 7. That is literally the exact opposite to the cultural idea that we live in, that there's a gate that leads to life and the way through it is easy, whatever you want and feel at a particular moment. And everyone finds it. See, it's the gospel of self-fulfillment that is so prominent in our culture. This is why so few people find the path. Because often it's because we aren't willing to get over the hurdle of our own pride and ideology. We will not surrender to God and repent of our own self-sufficiency. It's just too high a price to pay. 50 years ago, uh, Jewish philosopher Martin Buber actually discerned an emerging and destructive trajectory within society. He warned that a new religion was being accepted in the West. He said, this new religion could be detected in an increasing obsession with the self, with personal development and the preference of spirituality over religion, with therapy over communion with a transcendent God. It was the elevation of self above God. See, he said, here's what's going to happen. Politics is going to be superseded by psychology. We're just going to love to psychologize ourselves. The counter-cultural revolution had morphed into a therapeutic quest to discover individual fulfillment. And that's where we're at as a culture. See, this is where the claims of Jesus to be God and to be the only way to know God collide and challenge us, that we aren't God. Jesus is. We can't save ourselves. Only Jesus can. That counters our self-love. And so, as one writer has profoundly said, the most counter-cultural act one can commit in our culture is to commit self-disobedience. Have you ever thought about that? What that would look like in your own life? See, whatever one might say about the question of whether it's true or not, one cannot argue that Jesus and the rest of the Bible is very clear that we can't save ourselves. That there's only one name that saves us. Not Krishna, not Buddha, not Muhammad. No other person gives the ability for us to be saved other than Jesus. Because he's the only one who deals with the problem we actually have. Sin, that's the estrangement from God. Death our distance from God. He's the one who deals with it, not through teachings, not through ideas, through the cross and the resurrection. Sin only gets solved through those things. So the problem of our distance from God, the challenge of our reconciliation is only bridged through the cross and resurrection. 
the problem of the wrath of God being on us is only dealt with through the death and resurrection of who? Of Jesus. Not through teachings and concepts and pathways and philosophies through an act that wasn't ours to do. That's the biblical vantage point. And so even in the discussion of, well, he's the only way. He's the only way to what? He's the only way to God. And he's the only way to the eternal life that knowing God actually provides. I buried two of my dads, as I've talked about in another sermon. My biological dad died when I was 15. He and my mother had been uh, divorced for a few years before we got a phone call that he was dying. And uh, I never got to go visit him, even as a kid. And then my stepdad passed away. And I remember speaking at my stepdad's funeral. And at almost every funeral since, the very encouraging, comforting words of John 14, where Jesus looks out at people and he says, I'm going to go prepare a room for you and I'm going to come back and take you to it. Why does Jesus say that? He's tapping into what is essential and core to us. He's talking about heaven, sure. But historical Jesus study has done a lot of good work in recent years to reveal a clearer picture of what Jesus meant by heaven. He's not talking about the disembodied spirit world we typically envision, but a re-embodiment, a resurrected life in a new creation, a new heaven and a new earth. His vision of heaven isn't one where we're just like bouncing around in disembodied bliss and clouds. It's one of pleasure and re-embodiment and delight in the presence of the most amazing, glorious person one could ever imagine, God himself. One writer has said, if we can find in ourselves a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. See, this is what Jesus is trying to say. I'm taking, I'm going to take you home. This is where the idea of heaven gains philosophical credibility, even among skeptics. We've got longings in ourselves that nothing in our experience can touch. And more importantly, neither can they justify. We can't, naturalism can't justify our yearnings and desires. They can't give us a reason for these longings. It makes no sense that we yearn for a perfect world. If we're just animals, there's no reason we would even know that world should exist, that we should expect a reality other than what we've got in front of us. The biblical answer is that we were made for more, for a reality beyond what we currently see. Heaven is that place we seek, but it also marks our origin, our aim. So, what keeps us from that reality? Our sin. And that's the problem. Jesus came to address our sin. He's the only one who can save us from the place where sin leads us. If the debt doesn't get paid, what the Bible calls hell, this is why nothing else solves our deepest longings. No amount of money, power, sex, politics, work, family can satisfy that need in the universe. Nothing in this world is an all-encompassing balm to the soul. Because our restless hearts, Augustine said, were made to find rest in God. Okay, so, so where does all this land us? Though various religions also make exclusive claims about salvation, Christianity has this claim that it's the only way to a particular kind of salvation. 
There's a scholar, his name is Vinath Ramachandra, and he notes that the uniqueness of the Christian vision of salvation is this. The Christian promise is not just the rescue of individual souls from earth as a vague hope to make things better or free the self or experience a state of enlightenment like other religions. He says, our salvation lies not in an escape from this world, but in the transformation of this world. The biblical vision is unique. That is why when someone says that there is salvation in other faiths, I ask them, what salvation are you talking about? No faith holds out a promise of eternal salvation for the world the way the cross and resurrection of Jesus do. And that's the point for all of our lives. The message commonly accepted that all paths to salvation are equal and true turns out to be a mess. And not just because it isn't logical, but because we cannot even agree on what we mean by salvation. Salvation to this religion is vastly different concept than that religion or a Christian or an agnostic or a Hindu or a Buddhist or a Muslim or they're all, we all disagree about what we even mean by that word. Jesus doesn't claim that the, he's the way to whatever version of salvation a person may hold and come up with, but that he's the only way to God, to forgiveness, to reconciliation, to pleasure and delight evermore. The path to salvation in Jesus is not a disembodied spirit world or state and enlightenment of new heaven and a new earth. The last line of the seven books of Narnia put it beautifully where Lewis says this, it's the new creation, the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever in which every chapter is better than the one before. Father, I do pray that if someone's listening to this right now, that they would understand very clearly that Jesus is the only way to you. To have hope and joy in a future, to face the ultimate fear we all face, death itself with assurance, to face life today with clarity and courage, that you never die, that it's not based on our work for you, but your work for us that there's no amount of good we could do, so you had to come and do that good for us. Jesus, let us have faith and treasure that above everything else because that is the only hope. Do that work among us and let us wrestle sincerely with it as we seek to love, honor, and follow you in all things as Lord, as Savior, and as treasure. Jesus, do that among us. In your good name we pray, amen. Thanks for joining us today. I hope this message series has been helpful as we wrap it up next Sunday. I will be uh, speaking on Mother's Day. And so that's going to be a special time. I encourage you to come back and join us. Uh, you can join us live on Sunday morning at 10 a.m. on our YouTube channel, Pathway Church PTBO. Or you can uh, find us and connect with us through our website, pathwaylife.com. Thanks for subscribing, following along, and supporting this ministry. Uh, we look forward to helping you take another step closer to God in the days and months ahead. Have a great week.